cutting-edge conversations with the Quant community. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Quantcast, Risk.net podcast on Quant Finance. I'm Mauro Cesar, Quant Finance Editor of Risk, and today I have the pleasure to talk to Julien Guillon, Professor of Applied Mathematics at the École de Ponts Paris Tech. Hi, Julien. Thanks very Hi, much Mauro. for joining me. Thank you very much for having me, Mauro. This is the first time you are on the podcast. Uh, it's quite True. unbelievable. After so many years, we have known each other. Uh, I think it's, it was long overdue, and uh, I'm glad uh, you're here now. So we will take advantage of this, and uh, we will talk about several things today, um, mostly related to volatility modeling, of course, uh, but not only. Uh, we will also talk about football and I believe that will be a first for the fund finance section of risk. Uh, but let's start with uh, your latest work. Uh, you just published with us a paper uh, that investigates whether the term structure of the equity at the money skew is captured by a power law. Uh, it's online in risk.net and subscribers can uh, go and read it. Uh, now, that that headline, the title, and uh, the short description that I gave already contains quite a uh, quite a few uh, concepts that uh, not all listeners might be familiar with. So, uh, I'd like first to uh, clarify a few of the things we are talking about here. So, Julian, what does it mean to look at the term structure of the at the money volatility skew of equity options? Uh, what do we mean when we say that that term structure? follows a power law. Yeah, so what is the at the money skew? It's actually, it measures how much the implied volatility of options, so we are looking at equity indexes, increases when you decrease the strike by 1% around the money, right? So it quantifies how much more expensive out the money puts are compared to at the money puts, again, locally around the money. And that's a way to measure the a symmetry of the risk-neutral distribution of uh, future asset prices as anticipated by market participants. Okay, so that can be a kind of measure of you know the fear in the market. So for each option maturity, which typically is denoted by cap T, you know, in, in, in the financial industry, we have one number that's the add the monescue from market data. Uh, from option prices for this maturity cap. Right? And what we call the term structure is actually how this add the money skew depends on the maturity cap. Right? So it's typically decreasing. So it's going to be large for small maturities in absolute value because it's actually negative, the number. So we just look at the absolute value of the, of the, the skew and uh, vanishing for, for large maturities. And so if uh, the abdominic skew depends on the maturity capital, like a power law, which would be something like T to the power minus alpha for some positive number alpha, at least approximately. Mm -hmm. Then we say that the term structure of abdominic skew follows a, a power law. Okay, thank you for that. And uh, so, what is the paper about? What is the purpose of it? Um, and first, so, actually, I should say, you, you have not worked on this paper by yourself. You have a co-author, right? True. Uh, it's a paper co-authored with uh, my former colleague at uh, Bloomberg, Mehdi Elamhani. Uh, and we've, we've worked on, on this uh, while we were both uh, at uh, Bloomberg and then revised the paper 
after I, I joined Ecole des Pompes at Vistec. Yeah. Uh, so the, the, yeah, the main motivation of the paper was that, uh, you know, in, in, in the recent past, several papers have noted that the market term structure of abdominal skew of equity indexes uh, follows actually a power law. So this T to the power minus alpha with an exponent alpha positive and it's close to one half, actually maybe a little bit less than one half, like 0 0.4. And uh, the problem is that their, their, their conclusion, the conclusion of those papers relied only on fitting uh, market data on one given calibration date, right? So you fit the term structure of Adamonescu, but say today's, you know, I don't know, August 1st, then just on August 1st. Um, it's not like an, an empirical study uh, over a wide range of uh, uh, calibration dates. Uh, and, and, and then after those, those papers, I've seen a number of papers who in the introduction state things like, it's well known that the term structure of Adamonescu follows a power law, and in particular blows up at vanishing maturity. Because of course, this when when the maturity goes to zero, this t to the power minus alpha blows up to infinity. Right? And so there are two main goals uh, in our paper. So first, the first goal is to we wanted to check if the term structure of Adamonescu really follows a, a power law. So not just on a particular calibration date, but consistently uh, over time. And so we looked at two years of historical data, so two years of calibration dates, uh, the whole years of 2020 and 2021. And second, we also wanted to pay a close attention to short maturities and see whether market is really indicating or not some blow up or no blow up at zero maturity. Right, so what, why is it important to establish whether the term structure uh, follows a power law? Uh, and uh, what are the implications of being able to verify this pattern? Yeah, so it, it, it's important because any pricing model uh, generates a term structure of Adamonescu, so which reflects, as we've said, the, the term structure of asymmetry of the risk-neutral distribution of future asset prices. And in practice, the, 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 in stochastic volatility models, they generate this term structure of Adamonescu via the, the term structure of volatility of volatility and the spot vol correlation. So that means, for instance, a volatility one year from now is much less volatile than a volatility tomorrow, right? So we have also this term structure of volatility of volatility and via the spot vol correlation in the model, it generates a term structure of, uh, of Adamonescu. So a good pricing model should capture the term structure of Adamonescu that is observed in the market uh, via the right choice of a term structure of uh, volatility of volatility. So in order to pick a good pricing model, it's important to first measure what is the typical uh, shape of the term structure of Adamonescu that's observed in the market. So if it's a power law for all maturities, short and long, then you will want a pricing model that generates a power law term structure of Adamonescu. If it is something else, then you will prefer another model that will produce this uh, something else. I see. Uh, I know all this is tightly connected to rough volatility, which is something where we covered a lot in risk. Uh, could you could you clarify that connection? Sure. Uh, so precisely rough volatility models, they are models that, that generate a power law term structure of Adamonescu, at least for short maturities. So, so when it was observed in past papers that the market term structure of Adamonescu followed the power law, 
that would seen as a strong argument in favor of rough volatility models, because precisely for short maturity, they generate those adomnescues that blow up like t to the power minus alpha, where the exponent alpha is actually a one half minus h, where h is the famous the Hurst exponent of uh, of rough volatility model. So when we observe, you know, this power low decay with an alpha close to 0.5, that actually means a Hurst exponent h close to zero. Or if or if alpha is let's say 0.4, that would mean a h uh, of 0.1. Okay, which is uh, the typical value of Hurst exponent in 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 rough volatility studies. And you already mentioned what happens. Uh, so that there are difficulties when uh, uh, when you're dealing with very short maturities. Uh, could you explain what happens as you approach uh, zero and uh, what happens at zero as well? Mm -hmm. it, 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 so it's not really a technical difficulty. Uh, uh, the thing is, that of course, when you look at, at market data, you don't have a continuum of maturities, right? You only have a finite number of options maturities. Uh, and in particular, let's say you may find that a power law fits well your finite data term structure for a large range of strikes, uh, sorry, of uh, maturities, uh, for instance, for maturities from one month to three years. Uh, so in a log-log plot, <laughs> that means that your data is approximately on a straight line for this range of maturities. And uh, it's 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 very natural and tempting to extrapolate this straight line for all maturities, and in particular, so this straight line in the log-log plot again that corresponds to a, a power law in the natural scale, and you, in particular, mm -hmm. you, you may want to extrapolate it to the to zero maturity, uh, and so that that means that in the natural scales, what you're doing is that you're extrapolating this t to the power minus alpha behavior all the way to the zero maturity and then and then you conclude that the adomnescue blows up and uh, at, at, at vanishing maturities but 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 that's not necessarily right and and maybe one should not jump to conclusions and and extrapolate the power law behavior until the zero maturity it it might be that the short term behavior is is different and because we wanted to check this one part of our work uh, focuses on 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 short maturities and we made sure that we really accurately measured the uh, adomnescues for maturities as small as uh, one day. Right. So I, I think, uh, given that it's um, uh, it's time to tell us what what you found in the uh, in this research. And uh, so uh, there are several specifications possible for uh, for describing a power law. What specifications did you find that describe uh, the term structure better? Yeah, so, so, so our, our main findings are, are two things. So, so first is that indeed, we confirm that we observe a power law term structure for a large range of maturities, uh, let's say from one month to three years, several years. Uh, but the other main finding is that we observe a different behavior for maturities less than one month. Okay, so indeed the adomonescue behaves like a power law for a large range of maturities, larger than one month, but it also behaves differently for maturities smaller than one month. Okay? Mm -hmm. and, and this tells us that two parameters, uh, so 
let's say the constant c and alpha in c times t to the power minus alpha so this power law because of course the the power law has a has a multiplicative factor in front of it so you have we have two parameters in the power law description they're they're not enough to correctly capture the whole term structure of at the monescu for maturities uh you know uh, from one day to several years so the the two parameters are enough to correctly capture the term structure for maturity says between one month and several years but not for all maturities between one day and several years okay and so something different is happening for short maturities and at least a third parameter is needed to account for the behavior of the term mm -hmm. structure for short maturities in, in in fact what's happening for short maturities is that the market market at the money market skew is is smaller in absolute value than than the extrapolation of the power law that is fitted for maturities one month to to three years it actually looks like more a capped power law so a power law with a cap or a time shifted power law so with a, a small time shift to the left so when you have your power law but you time shift it to the left you slightly translate it to the left then it does not blow up to infinity right it just goes maybe quite large but to a finite value uh, at uh, at uh, maturity zero and so uh, we fitted the term structure of uh, the minuscule produced by volatility models precisely with three parameters not only the two parameters of the rough volatility models but the two parameters of the rough volatility models typically volovol and this exponent alpha or the Hurst exponent even, plus an extra parameter which is the cap for capped power law or which is the time shift for the time shifted power law remember this small time shift to the left and we actually observe a much better global fit for all maturities from one day to several years including very short maturities when we uh, fit those uh, models with uh, with three parameters okay. so one extra parameter seems actually uh, enough whereas when you look uh, for at, at the, the the power law or rough volatility models uh, like the so-called rough Bergoni model then the the goodness of fit that means the the average error between the market data and the parametric shape that you're fitting deteriorates a lot when the first monthly maturity gets that gets closer okay so that means that when the first monthly maturity is one month from now the fit of the power law is good actually when it's three weeks from now well, maybe not so good but when it's two weeks from now no it's worse it's not good and one week from now it's it's even worse and all the way to one day okay um so the fit deteriorates a lot when you get closer to the first monthly maturity and that's not the case at all for the three parameter models the fit quality barely depends on whether the the first monthly maturity is is tomorrow or is in is in one month and that's the sign of a good uh, fit parametric model the fit should not depend on whether you are close or not to the first monthly uh, maturity so we see that with just one extra parameter this third parameter we can much better capture the whole term structure and this extra parameter is actually very important because it captures both the short and long behavior of implied volatility and because the three parameter shapes they they generate actually finite at the monescu at zero maturity suddenly it becomes very very unclear whether the at the monescu really blows up or not for for vanishing maturity right uh, in fact the, the the fact that we can have a much better fit for small maturities with models that have a finite zero maturity skew is rather indicating us 
that probably the Adominescu uh, does not blow up uh, at, at, at zero maturity. And interestingly, maybe to, to, to conclude on your question, it, this is confirmed with uh, very interesting graphs in, in the paper, which show the average term structure of Adominescu over the two years of uh, empirical data that, that, that we look at. So that is, we, this time we are not fitting a parametric shape every day of the two-year data period and look for the shape that, that, that fits best, but, but we just take the average of the Adominescu as a function of the maturity. And, and what is striking in, in those average graphs is that in log-log scale, we get indeed a straight line for maturities larger than one month. So that means a, a power law in the natural scale. But we get another very different straight line for maturities less than, than one month. So we're actually looking at three indexes in, in the paper, S&P, Eurostox, and DAX. So for the S&P, the, the new straight line is much flatter than the line for maturities more than one month. Okay. And for the Eurostox and the DAX, the, the new straight line for maturities less than one month is actually completely flat. Right? So statist statistically, you cannot you know, reject the hypothesis that is that is completely flat. And, and if it's completely flat, it's just a capped power law in the natural scale. And that means that the Adomonescu for those indexes does actually probably not blow up uh, for the for the zero maturity. So eventually we end up with a, a conclusion that probably the, at least for DAX and, and the Eurostox, the Adomonescu is, is finite for zero maturity and distributed around the typical value of 1.5 in absolute value. So which means that if you decrease the strike by 1% for at very short maturities, then you increase the volatility of Adomone puts by uh, 1.5 uh, volatility points. Well, fantastic. There's a lot of interesting new findings there. So uh, I was wondering what what is normally used to uh, capture, to model the uh, the Adamanis Q? What other specification models are, are used in practice or are common? Uh, so, okay, so so, so all the, the, the parametric shapes that, that we look at, they come from uh, pricing models, okay, again, with a term structure of volatility of volatility, which will generate a term structure of Adamanis Q. By the way, actually, the, the term structure of Adamanis Q that um, we use in the study from the, the, the pricing models is the one uh, that is um, uh, uh, produced by what is now called the bergomi guillon expansion. So I'm not just bragging because there's my name <laughs> in the expansion, but that's actually a, an, an expansion that uh, I derived like uh, yeah, more than 10 years ago now with Lorenzo Bergomi. And that was actually published in, 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 in Risk uh, magazine at the time. Uh, under the, the name uh, stochastic volatilities orderly smiles and so that that's a, a, a an expansion at uh, in, in order two in small volatility of volatility but that's actually valid for large volatility of volatilities as well uh, and and that gives the the, the, the term structure of at the as a function of the, the parameters of the models so uh, yeah very natural ways of uh, parameterizing the the at the is through this parameterization of the volatility. So we mentioned, for instance, rough volatility model, like the rough Bergomi model with the two parameters that we mentioned before. And then I mentioned like two, uh, three parameter shapes. So now the term structure of volatility is rather mm -hmm. described by a, a capped power law uh, or a time shifted power law. Actually in the paper, we also suggest another uh, three parameter shape. Uh, actually, there are plenty of uh, possible three parameter shapes that 
basically look like something like a time shifted power law that 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 do uh, the job. And interestingly, a, 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 another parametrization that that's quite useful is also considered in in, in our paper. Uh, it had, it now has four parameters. Um, so you may wonder why why we use four parameters because if it works well with three parameters, then what's the point of adding an extra parameter? Uh, the point of adding an extra parameter is that the pricing models, the underlying pricing models, now become Markov. Right? They are Markovian models, and so they are much easier and faster to simulate than the three-parameter or two-parameter models that actually are not Markov. And these four-parameter models is actually the, the, the what is the famous one, it's called the two-factor Bergomi model. So it's actually a model where the uh, term structure of vol of vol is, is uh, described by a, a convex combination of uh, two exponentials rather than a power law or a time-shifted power law. But what happens in practice is that, you know, you know, your listeners can, can try on, mm -hmm. on, a, on an Excel, Excel sheet, for instance, is that the, uh, a, a, a convex combination of two decreasing exponential uh, approximate extremely well a time-shifted power law, for instance. So it's basically two uh, ways to parameterize the same kind of uh, function. Again, the benefit with the two-factor Bergomi model is that now the underlying pricing model is Markov. Right. So thanks for that. Now let's move on to, to another topic. Uh, we don't move by much still on volatility modeling, but I'd like to know from you uh, about the um, joint calibration of uh, S&P and VIX uh, smiles, which is something you have worked on for, uh, for some time. And uh, it's something that is, uh, has been researched a lot in, uh, in academia, but in the industry as well. From your, your viewpoint, what, uh, what is the status of that area of research now? Yeah, so it's uh, it's true that it's a, it's it's an important and, and intriguing problem. Maybe we should like start again by saying that it's important because uh, you know the, the VIX is basically the thirty day uh, implied volatility of the S and P. That's actually the thirty day implied volatility of log contracts on the on the S and P. And so it's it's you know the, the uh, the, the VIX options are are deeply linked to uh, uh, the, 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 the dynamics of the S&P itself. So in particular, if you want to avoid even uh, within the same financial institutions to have like two different uh, desks that arbitrage each other, so like an S&P desk and a VIX desk, then you, you want to make sure that you have a model that consistently price options on S&P and options on, on the VIX. And so indeed people have, started looking at this quite early, as soon, very early, as right after uh, uh, CBU started uh, uh, um, launching the, the, the VIX options in 2006. So I remember presentations by Jim Gadrol in 2008, then there were different papers, one for instance by Ramakunt and Thomas Kokol in 2013. So it was already, you know, people looking at this, at this question uh, at the end of the 2000s and early 2010. Um, and then uh, somehow, I think I contributed to revive quite a lot the, the, uh, the, the, the subject by um, obtaining the first, what I call exact calibration. So exact maybe in between quotes in the sense that it's not completely exact in the sense that you need a, a numerical method to uh, fit jointly to S&P and VIX miles. So because it's a numerical method, it's not, it's not exactly exact in, in the sense or in the mathematical sense, but it's exact in the sense that if you push the, the, the parameters of the numerical methods, 
uh, okay, all the way to convergence, then it will converge to the, an, an exact fit. Okay, and this was done uh, an, an interesting model, which is non-parametric. So non-parametric is precisely what's needed to get an exact fit in the sense that I just described. And also it was a discrete time model. Okay, so that's quite interesting because you know most of the time people look at at continuous time model. And using like optimal transport technique and actually like Schrodinger problems, uh, I was able to uh, build a discrete time model, non-parametric, that exactly calibrates jointly to SNP smiles, VIX futures, and VIX smiles. So the difficult problem of uh, having the correct SNP smiles uh, at uh, let's say T and T plus 30 days. 30 days is the 30 days of the VIX and the correct VIX futures and VIX smiles at at, uh, at T. Um, and that was that was interesting and important, I think, because uh, that was solving the question of does there exist like joint arbitrages between S&P and VIX uh, in the market? And as soon as you have a model that jointly fits, then that tells you that there is no arbitrage. So either there's an arbitrage in the market and the algorithm would detect mm. it and quantify it, or there is no arbitrage and then the model builds a model. Uh, sorry, the algorithm builds a model that uh, that uh, jointly calibrates. Okay. Uh, and that was a model in discrete time. So in some sense, it's not uh, completely satisfying because then if you want to price uh, options on S&P with observation bets that are you know maybe every day or something like that, then you cannot use this model. So it's 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 nice to have a continuous time model that does the same job. And uh, I also um, uh, did that with a, now the kind of a Schrodinger bridge approach that was like um, actually building on a, on past work by uh, Pierre Henri Labordet. And uh, and building basically the same uh, same same thing with uh, with uh, with with the continuous time. The other approach, in, an, in another recent paper with uh, Florian Bourget, uh, also former colleague at at Bloomberg, being to uh, uh, extrapolate the discrete time model to a, a martingale continuous time model. I, I also want to mention here that for these non-parametric models, there there has been an interesting also paper by. Uh, uh, Grégoire Loeper, uh, Ivan Guo, Yano uh, Bloy, and, and Chi Wang uh, doing also like this joint calibration in continuous time using optimal transport techniques. And then to conclude on your question, there's the, there's the other uh, line of research, which is not exact calibration, but just an approximate fit and with param parametric models. Okay, so now the models, they are just parametric models. They have like a certain number of parameters with more or less clear financial interpretation. And uh, and you just try to you know fit as well as you can uh, both the smiles of S&P and VIX and the VIX futures using the, those models that are parametric. And so there has been work uh, with rough volatility models. So in particular, you published in RISC a uh, paper by Mathieu Rosenbaum and Jim Gavrol and, uh, and Paul Juslin uh, with the quadratic rough Aston model. Uh, and also a recent uh, development in, with path-dependent volatility uh, models. Uh, actually, it's interesting to note that the, the, the model in the paper by Mathieu, Jim, and, and Paul is actually a path-dependent volatility model, uh, and, uh, and and rough and path-dependent and, and with path-dependent volatility. And uh, and uh, those parametric models, they uh, they they are also able to to accurately uh, jointly fit uh, S and P and and VIX smile. Uh, just to be quite complete and uh, to mention. Uh, uh, works of other people. I will mention that there were like also recent uh, approaches with uh, signatures by uh, Krista Kukiro and, uh, and co-authors, or the Quintic-Orstein-Ullenbeck uh, model by uh, Eduardo Abijaber and co-authors, 
but with very time-dependent parameters or input curve. So in some sense, they are they are not they are parametric, but a little bit uh, non-parametric in the sense of their uh, the time dependency of the uh, parameters. And one thing that comes to my mind now, and that's I think it may, might be enlightening for for your listeners, is that wh why is it? Because maybe maybe we we will talk about it later. But why is it that path-dependent volatility models they are actually quite natural for this joint calibration program? Is that if you even if you take like a classical pricing model like the two-factor Bergomi model uh, and you want to calibrate it jointly to S&P and VIX mile, uh, then what you end up with is actually a path-dependent volatility model in the sense that all uh, spot vol correlations are minus one and all vol vol correlations are plus one. So that means that actually a, a single Brownian motion is driving all the dynamics of spot and volatilities and that's exactly uh, that exactly means that the model actually degenerate into a path-dependent um, volatility model. So that's really a sign that if you use, uh, uh, let's say, a popular stochastic volatility model, you have to degenerate them to path dependent volatility uh, to jointly calibrate. And that that's, that's a strong argument in favor of, uh, of path dependent volatility. Right. Uh, well, I knew that area of research on the joint calibration of S&P and, and VIX miles uh, was active. I didn't. Uh, I didn't know it was this active, and so many people involved in in research on it. Uh, but you gave me the hint uh, on on path uh, path dependent volatility, which is uh, uh, the other area of research that you are uh, you are working on. Uh, you've been working on uh, recently. Um, so what is, what is new there is something that you worked in the past, uh, maybe 10 years ago, you mentioned, and now uh, as, uh, as a revived uh, relevance. Could you explain why that is the case? Yes, sure. So it, it's true that in 2014, I, I published this paper entitled Path Dependent Volatility already at the, at the time about precisely those models. If you want those models, they are quite natural. If you want them, they combine the benefits of local volatility and stochastic volatility models in some, in some sense, because like local volatility models, they can be exactly calibrated to the full surface of implied volatility. And they are also complete models where you have, at least in theory, right, perfect replication. Um, but they have a, a richer dynamics, spot vol dynamics, uh, than local volatility models. And they have dynamics that can be as rich as the ones that you can generate with stochastic volatility models. Okay, so that's that's really nice to have those those path-dependent volatility models. Um, another way to motivate them is that okay, we started with Black and Scholes, okay, constant volatility, absolutely no feedback from prices to volatility, and then to local volatility models, where indeed we have a feedback from prices to volatility, but the feedback is only through the current uh, asset price. Okay. And actually, that's not at all what we observe in the market. The joint spot vol dynamics in the market is shows the feedback from prices to volatility, but not, not just through the value of uh, the, the, the asset price. For instance, the asset price can be very large. So somehow, if you think local volatility, that would mean, oh, the volatility has to be small. But the, maybe the, the asset price is very large. But in the past two, week, two weeks, it lost you know, 10 or 20% of its value. In which case, we know that the volatility will be high. Right? For instance, the VIX is always very high if the S&P loses 10% of its value in two weeks, even if the S&P is very large. So that really means that actually the feedback should be from past returns, recent past returns, 
rather than just the current uh, asset price. And that's precisely what I wanted to, you know, dig, uh, dig in more, 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 more in depth. And uh, with uh, Jordan Lecofac, who is a PhD candidate at uh, Berkeley, and was an intern at Bloomberg, and then uh, the first uh, quant finance PhD fellow at, uh, at Bloomberg, we tackled this, uh, this problem of trying to find uh, what, what is looking really at the data. So it's really an empirical study. What is the correct feedback from past returns to volatility that we observe in the market? So when we say volatility, it can be either implied volatility, like the VIX, for instance, or the realized volatility over the next day, measured by, for instance, five-minute returns over the next day. And uh, we, uh, it, it took us quite a long time because we looked at a lot of indexes, a lot of data. Uh, we tried, you know, many types of features, so, uh, you know, uh, quantities that summarize the, the, the past asset prices and functions from those past asset prices to the volatility we tried many many of them and eventually we ended up uh, showing that a very simple model does a very good job at predicting volatility again either implied volatility or realized volatility and this model is simply telling you that the volatility is just linear in the recent trend and the recent uh, historical volatility that's as simple as that so historical volatility is just basically the, the past return squared. Right? It's just how volatile the market was in the recent past. Uh, and the recent trend is just an, an average of the, the, the past returns themselves, so whether the market was going up or down. And you really need those two factors. But with just those two factors, you already have a, a, an excellent predictive power of the, the model. And so you end up with a simple path-dependent volatility models. Uh, and what we show in the paper that was actually uh, just published last week in, in quantitative finance is that this uh, model actually has a very natural continuous time version that we can make Markov. So it's very easy to and fast to, to simulate and handle. Uh, and that captures all the important stylized facts about volatility. So by this, I mean the leverage effect, volatility clustering, uh, the rough roughness of volatility at the daily scale, because the model is actually not rough, strictly speaking, but when you look at uh, the, 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 the properties of uh, volatility at the daily scale, you observe roughness exactly like in the uh, uh, seminal paper by uh, Jim Gadrol, Mathieu Rosenbaum, and, uh, and Thibaut Gesson, like this volatility is rough paper. And also you can generate very realistic smiles of S&P and VIX uh, to the point that you can actually, as I said before, uh, accurately jointly calibrate the S&P smiles, the VIX futures, and the VIX smiles with this simple path-dependent uh, volatility model. I, I must say that I'm, I'm very happy with this work. It has been downloaded more than 7,000 times on uh, SSRN, uh, the preprint, I mean, for, for now. And I get a lot of uh, feedback from Many people in the industry, uh, traders, and even former uh, colleagues, uh, for instance, traders that I used to work with at uh, Sogen uh, more than 10 years ago. Some of, some of them are still at Sogen. Some of them are now working in, in other banks or, or funds. And they, and they really liked the model because it was really talking to them. And so they actually implemented it and uh, you know, were pricing like different derivatives with, with it. And, uh, and yeah, it, it's, uh, it's, it's nice to see that you're 
you know, that you, people are picking up uh, your work. And I indeed believe that that was a missing bit in the realm of uh, uh, volatility modeling, because in the end, that's a that's a simple model, just one brilliant motion <laughs> driving the dynamics of everything, but with the correct uh, and simple, but but very accurate, simple but very accurate feedback from uh, past returns to to volatility. Right, uh, it's interesting and, and good to hear that uh, that that model finds uh, finds space in uh, in applications in in practice in real markets. Uh, well done on that. I would like to move on from uh, volatility modeling now and ask you the uh, your life as a quant type of question. Uh, <laughs> so you've got you've got uh, already a, a, a long career and you spent some of it in banks, uh, some of it at, at Bloomberg, at, uh, so a data software vendor, and in academia. Actually, in academia, you were throughout uh, the other tenures as well. Uh, may I ask you what? Uh, what are the differences uh, between these three careers that you have uh, you have had in your career? Uh, yeah, it's true that I've been lucky enough to experience uh, an activity as a quant researcher in in different environments. Uh, as you said, the bank at, at Société Générale for for six years, at the, right after my PhD, and then uh, Bloomberg for for ten years, and then. Now as a professor at, uh, at Ecole des Ponts Paris Tech, so one of the most prestigious uh, grandes écoles, as we say, in, in engineering school in, in, in France. So I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful that I was able to, to have those different jobs. So your question is, yeah, how, 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 how do they compare? I think, so I, I think it's nice to do it this way <laughs> in the sense that if you want to learn finance, uh, it's nice to be very close to the markets and for this working in a bank was great because you work really next to the traders and you really see what are the problems, what are the products, you need to identify and quantify the risks, you need, you, 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 you're close enough to, you know, the, the, the money and the heart of trading uh, to get like a, a, the, a, the, the, the best training in, in finance, I would say. Um, of course, after having like all the technical training from university, right, before, um, and uh, and then moving to Bloomberg was also really nice in the sense that Bloomberg, as you say, so it's not a bank; you don't have traders. So in some sense, you're a little bit further from the from the market, um, but at the same time, you uh, let's say can interact with more people in the sense that uh, Bloomberg has a lot of of different clients and with different problems. And so you end up working on a wider variety of problems. Okay, so I, I, of course, I, because of, you know <laughs> my interest in volatility, and the, and of course there's an interest in in derivatives pricing and hedging at Bloomberg. So I was still working quite a lot on that, but you know uh, also on mm -hmm. other different topics that are more purely numerical or optimization, statistical problems. You have people working on optimal execution, uh, you know, just portfolio optimization. Uh, even things that I did not touch, but like some of some people in the team were really more about like building software. Uh, it's nice to have like nice visualization tools and things like that. So it's a very um, it's it's a nice environment in the in terms of the variety of of, uh, of uh, topics that that you that you can touch, and uh, and 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 finally now I'm experiencing. Uh, life as a quant researcher in uh, in academia. It's been quite recent because it's, it's, it was just 
even less than one year that I that I took this uh, professor po position. Of course, I was already teaching uh, all along the way, uh, even in France at Ecole des Ponts Plissagely and University Paris-Diderot at the time, and at Columbia University and NYU when I was in 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 New York. I will actually uh, give a, 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 a course in the master programs at Columbia and Baruch College this uh, this fall. Um, and academia clearly, well, there's the obvious thing that okay, you you will earn less money in academia. <laughs> That's a fact. <laughs> uh, uh, you you can touch even more topics. You know that's the thing. Academic freedom is well known. Indeed, you you basically can work on any topic that you like with the people that you that you like. So that that that's extremely uh, valuable. And and I must say mm -hmm. that uh, I can even work on things that are different from uh, from finance because you know i'm just in academia and for instance uh, as you mentioned in the beginning and some people know that i like a lot uh, football and i like to uh, combine football and mathematics and so i am actually spending uh, some of my time on uh, on those math problems for for football in particular taking advantage of the fact that uh, some of my colleagues at ecole des ponts are for instance really good at other Topics in, in mathematics, for instance, some of the recent problems I look at for the Champions League are actually deeply linked to graph theory. And I'm not an expert at all in graph theory. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm educating myself and I can, um, uh, you know, tap on the on the expertise of some of my colleagues to, to help me in this endeavor. Well, so what aspect of the Champions League is linked to graph theory? Uh, so there are two things. So for instance, one thing that I do every year is to publish the exact probabilities of uh, the draw of the round of 16 of the Champions League. Okay, And one right. way to quickly compute... So the first question is actually, what are the exact probabilities? There are plenty of wrong numbers that uh, people post on, on Twitter, <laughs> typically mm. like a few days before, because it's not an easy problem. It, 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 it looks like easier than it actually is. And so you, you you need to be careful, and I and and I basically publish, I've published like several articles in Le Monde and uh, El País about like how to exactly uh, uh, compute those uh, those probabilities. And it happens that if you want to compute them quickly, so that's more now a, a mathematical problem, uh, then then the right tool is actually graph theory. Um, I cannot really explain more like this, but you have like a uh, you know, recursive formula that 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 taps on graph theory, and that 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 is the best way, I believe, uh, to uh, to to compute all those probabilities. And interestingly, the other thing that's linked to graph theory is the the new format of the the league phase of the Champions League uh, starting next year, so in September 2024. Uh, with now, no, you don't, you will not have like eight groups of four as now, but you will have only one league of uh, 36 teams actually so not 32 but 36 now but each team will only play eight games against eight opponents eight different opponents okay and for at home and for away and so if you uh, so for instance you need you want to draw uh the opponents of uh, of each teams uh but in a way that guarantees that you know two teams from the same country will not meet each other and you also need to think of the schedule like for instance the two teams from milan if they qualify ac milan and inter milan they cannot play at home the same day mm -hmm. because they're sharing the same stadium and things like that and so if you think of drawing who 
plays against who. So if you think of a graph, you will uh, you will see the the, the vertices as uh, as as teams, and the edges. There is an edge between two vertices between two teams if they play against each other. So because each team has to play eight uh, opponents, so that's what is called the eight regular graph, and so that's that's how we're looking at how how we can uh, draw the teams in. in, in I see. In, in, I see for this new format. Well, and the other uh, the other big uh, big work you did on uh, football and statistics relates to the World Cup. I remember uh, quite a few years ago now uh, your paper about uh, the World Cup draw uh, in Brazil. Uh, could you tell us the story there? It's quite interesting, I think. Yeah, it's 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 very funny. I I I, I liked it very much to to look at this problem because in particular it ended up with me publishing. Um, an article in the New York Times, like in June 2014, just before the, the start of the 2014 World Cup in Brazil. And at the time, I really knew zero journalists, like not 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 even one journalist. So it's it was I just you know submitted my article, uh, sending an email at opinions at newyorktimes.com and other journalists as well. <laughs> and the New York Times uh, accepted it, so it, it it was great. So it all started in actually December 2013 when I was actually in in Brazil for the Research in Options Conference. Uh, and at the time where Brazil was actually uh, uh, drawing the teams for the World Cup in, in June 2014. And clearly something was wrong at the end of the draw because you, you, clearly, you could clearly see that there were like three very strong groups and four weak groups. Whereas it's clear that FIFA, you know, would like to have balanced groups. They don't want to have like a very strong, like well, three very strong groups and three very mm -hmm. weak groups. Uh, and the reason for this is that they were using Pots by geography because there's this geographic constraint that two teams from the same continent, except for Europe, cannot uh, uh, be drawn into the same group. And so they were using four pots by geography mostly. So pot number one was just the eight best teams based on the FIFA rankings. But then the other pots were just, oh, the African teams with the South American teams. And then another pot with Asian teams and North American teams. And then the last spot was just the unseeded European teams. Because then in that way, they were they could easily enforce the geographic constraint. But that was at the expense of, uh, of uh, group balance. And so I said, no, no, it should not be like this. The pot should be made by level, with pot number one being the eight best teams, and then pot number two, the eight following best teams, and so on. Uh, but then if you just pick randomly one team from each pot, to make a group, which is what they do, uh, then you may end up with two African teams, for instance, or you know, two two South American teams because you you just draw teams without paying attention. So that's where math comes into play, and that you have to be careful that you only draw teams that uh, are allowed for 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 your group. And uh, this was so I actually suggested uh, three uh, methods um, in a paper that I posted on actually on SSRN, but that was not really my, my motive was not really to, motivation was not to publish an academic paper. It was more to publish in, in the press and to, so that, so that FIFA really modifies the, the draw procedure for the, for the World Cup. Uh, and, uh, and so I wrote to the FIFA president and all the FIFA vice presidents and the presidents of confederations <laughs> to let them know of my work and that actually would be published uh, in, the, in the press. And I got no answer until <laughs> the day when, when the my paper was published in the New York Times and actually in Le Monde on the same day, and uh, and that was an answer by uh, Michel Platini, so president of UEFA at the time, through his uh, head of office, 
uh, Kevin Lamour at the time. And, um, and uh, yeah, thanking me for my work. And then uh, Kevin nicely uh, handed over the, the paper to the personal assistant of Zed Blatter, the president of FIFA at the time. And eventually it uh, ended up with FIFA changing the draw procedure for the 2018 World Cup uh, in, in Russia with pots based uh, based uh, on, on the levels of the teams and, and not, the, and not the, the geography. Still, if I may say, at the time there was still an issue, which was the FIFA rankings, because the pots by level, they, you need an a priori ranking. And yep. they used, of course, FIFA rankings because they're <coughs> FIFA, but the FIFA rankings were completely flawed. You could like, like completely, um, uh, 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 how can I say, uh, uh, game them fake yeah game them and and, and fakely increase exactly game the, the rankings by just not playing uh, friendlies uh, during the year preceding the world cup so that was really weird so uh among others i was i mean i was here not just myself I there, but plenty of people like you know advocating that fifa change the, the rankings and go to some for instance uh, elo type uh, rankings which indeed mm -hmm. fifa adopted after the 2018 world cup which means that in 2022, now you had everything great because you have the right draw procedure, guaranteeing group balance, and based on pots by level, but with now the right FIFA rankings, uh, which were much better in 2022. And when you look at, uh, if you can, if you go to the Wikipedia page, for instance, look at the the groups in 2022, and you will see they are just perfect. They're they they're perfectly balanced, and I think honestly, I enjoyed a lot the group stage of the 2022 uh, World Cup. And I think I was not the only one. And I think it's it's because now you had like the, the, the best, uh, uh, you know, draw procedure and, and rankings to have the the the, the best uh, spectacle for the for the group stage. Which which they try to to change again, uh, creating the group of three uh, groups of three, which well they retracted now. It's not a thing anymore. And uh, exactly. I know you contributed and to to that. Yeah, I'm very much well. involved in that, and I'm also like very proud of this because actually, uh, yeah, in 2017, January 2017, so actually long ago, right after Gianni Infantino was elected FIFA president, uh, the FIFA Council voted that uh, the World Cup would be extended to 48 teams from 32 uh and that the format would be 16 groups of three so that the number of games would not exceed the 80 uh but but groups of of three are are, are clearly not a good idea uh, there are several issues like you know scheduling balance and uh, uh, even the fact that uh, some teams are uh, one third of the teams is not playing so in terms of you know the economic value and even the sporting spectacle it's not it's not uh, it, there's a, a lot of uh, loss, uh, lost value, uh, but the most important problem is the risk of collusion, because two teams qualify out of the, the three uh, team groups, and so that means that the two teams who play the last game, one team is of course not playing because there's two teams, and if there is a, a result of the game that qualifies both uh, teams at the expense of the yep. of the third team that has already played their two games, then they can collude. And even if they don't collude, just the suspicion of collusion is terrible for for the game, right? It's 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 then you have suspicion. You, you're not sure if it was a fair, uh, you know, a fight or not. And so, uh, and so, actually, very early, uh, I, I I I I wanted to quantify and convince, quantify uh, what was the, the the risk of collusions in in groups of three. And so, I I posted a paper on SSN that was later published by Journal of Sports Analytics. By the way, the, the other paper was also published in Journal of Quantitative Analysis of Sports. But most importantly for me, it was published in the New York Times again in June 2018, mm -hmm. so just before the, the start of the 2018 uh, 
World Cup uh, with the title uh, Wild, or I don't know if it was like under an interrogative form, but like, or, or the group of three will win the World Cup. So enjoy this one. And uh, and and yes, of course, we'll get some you know some traction thanks to of course when we publish in in the New York Times. And eventually, I was uh, able to directly uh, connect with um, the Deputy Secretary General of uh, FIFA in charge of uh, of uh, competitions. That was actually interesting because that was through uh, my uh, colleague at Columbia, um, uh, uh, Sunil Gulati, who used to be uh, the president of US soccer for many years and a member of the FIFA Council. And so I had actually written to him after the, the, the early job on the, the draw procedure, because actually uh, the, 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 the two most aggrieved teams were the US and, and Chile, aggrieved by the draw procedure of FIFA at the time. And so I thought that, you know, maybe he would pick up on this, but well, eventually not so much. But so that's that's how I contacted him first. And then uh, because we are also colleagues at, at Columbia, where we're both teaching, and then we, you know, we, we, we met and uh, and uh, and 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 he, he he put me in, in touch, uh, in particular with the, the Deputy Secretary General of FIFA. So I was really advocating for this change of uh, of format. And so I guess like people were, I mean, I know that people have read the papers and maybe other papers as well and discussed and uh, and eventually it was decided in March 2023 20, uh, this year that uh, uh, the, the, the format of the 2026 will actually be uh, 12 groups of four and no 16 groups of three so I was extremely happy there was a long fight but uh, the, the efforts have paid in the end and it's, it's good because otherwise yeah. otherwise like the, the world cup would have been like really annoying like with all those absolutely uh, absolutely three. it's great that uh, fifa realized that uh, the, the group of uh, groups of three was an awful idea uh, and i'm glad that you contributed to that by showing uh, that the the quantification of the probability of collusion was actually possible and uh, i'm sure that gave a visual information of how how bad the idea was. Uh, but let's move on again to another topic. Last couple of questions I, I have for you. Uh, this is a big one, but uh, we cannot go through it in, in great extent. So it's about Black Shoals. Um, 50 years on, obviously it's still in use, but a lot of the pillars and the concepts behind it are being uh, criticized and dismantled uh, throughout the, 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 these five decades. Uh, my question is, what remains still standing of uh, the concept of uh, the black show behind the black show formula? Well, yeah. So as well, you say, of course, like there's the there's the formula, right? So the black show formula is still here because we we quote options parties through their implied volatility, which is just you know, as I think it's uh, Ricardo Rebonato who said that it's the wrong number that you have to put in the wrong formula to get the correct price, uh, which is like a fun fun um, you know something mm -hmm. like. Um, but but actually, what 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 is important? Well, of course, the formula is important, right? Because yeah, I think it's it's the the model maybe would not have been so widely adopted without a formula. And if you don't have a formula, you cannot you know imply the the volatility quickly. And so that's so the formula is important. But 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 maybe more even more important is the concept of how how you you value an option. So this fact that, oh, you build a replicating portfolio. So even if even if there is clearly no perfect replication in the market, there are plenty of, you know, maybe there are some arbitrage, there are some mm -hmm. plenty of frictions and, uh, but, but still to have a model, 
even if it's a very stylized model, but that provides this important idea of why, what is the right rezoning for valuing a derivative. And it's because of that's the price of the hedge okay, that you put in front of this derivative. That is that is crucial. Right? And again, even though it's it's an approximation of the reality, uh, it's it's still good to have. It's still good to have. And so, and so that 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 really what remains, I, I think. So, for instance, uh, not not to advertise again pad dependent volatility, but pad dependent mm -hmm. volatility, for for example, they are just yeah. Of course, you you know, you, people start with models, and then models are improved over the years. That's how research works, and and that's good like that. Uh, so again, yeah, constant volatility with Black and Scholes, then the local volatility proposed by uh, Bruno Dupier with the uh, uh, volatility that depends on the current uh, asset price. And then this path dependent volatility where actually you see that the feedback is from past asset returns. But it's still, for instance, models that are quite simple in the sense that they're just, the dynamics is just governed by one and driven by one single Brownian motion. So, you know, quite quite in the spirit of Black and Scholes. And, uh, and yeah, and in that sense, um, uh, it's 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 a, it's a natural yeah it's it's a natural continuation of the Black Scholes model where uh, you have perfect replication in in the model because it's just uh, the dynamics mm -hmm. are just governed by one Brownian motion so uh, yeah so it's still if you want the the the, 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 the it's, what is important is the the perfect replication argument I think and it's still used in 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 recent models that actually capture better the joint dynamics of uh, spot and vol than than Black Scholes but yeah. still the the reasoning is still there. So Julian, moving to the conclusion of this uh, of this podcast, I'd like to ask you uh, what will keep you busy uh, in the coming weeks and months. What are your future research projects? Uh, so you know this 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 path dependent path. volatility thing is actually very interesting because it it kind of opens up a new line of research because it's a kind of a, a new uh, paradigm in in volatility uh, modeling. So there are plenty of interesting questions that 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 come up. Uh, for instance, the uh, the joint spot vol dynamics in the in the model, uh, working on the discrete time version of the model and uh, what are the, the how, how, how can the model uh, calibrate without, you know, using leverage functions or things like that. So there are there are, there are plenty of interesting questions, including questions of, you know, what's the the best way to uh, to uh, simulate uh, the model? So plenty of, of 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 questions of numerical or theoretical nature. Um, mostly mostly the practical ones that that interest me because of my long life as a quant. Uh, and uh, and there there are also probably other topics. That will come from uh, my collaboration with uh, BNP Paribas. So I have started this uh, new chair with BNP Paribas, and it's also uh, joined with uh, Université Paris Cité. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, so we are working uh, closely together on different uh, on different topics. Uh, so including some topics that are more about machine learning. So uh, I'll, I'll see where where this uh, leads us. Oh, fantastic, fantastic. I didn't know you were involved in machine learning research. Um, right. 
Julien, it was great to talk to you today. Thanks very much for joining us. It was great to, to hear about your research, about uh, path-dependent volatility, about football draws, of course. So thanks very much. Thank you very much, Mao. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks for your time. And thanks everybody for listening.